when I'm not hacking away at Stopwatch, I am investing in early stage companies uh, across the country. I'm predominantly looking for underestimated founders. And notice I didn't say underrepresented, underestimated, because I believe underestimation is not about religion, race, gender, um, economic status. It's about you know folks who felt that they were not able to get easy access to capital, but have kind of outsized ideas. So I'm looking to make investments in them and, and carry their their dreams forward. And uh, and I've been doing that for for a few years now. So Zach's video here. That was the voice of Dan Rosignol. He is the chief growth officer at Stopwatch. Uh, he's also an investor and had a really fascinating career and sort of before his professional career has had just an incredible life journey. He was born in Haiti and quickly became an orphan. And shortly after that, within the first two years of his life, uh, he was adopted by a family in central Maine. And he shares his backstory. He shares his, his career journey. He shares his thoughts on focusing on underestimated founders as opposed to underrepresented founders and just is honestly a, a real you know, breath of fresh air and, and someone that I'm incredibly grateful to have met and sort of befriended um, during the process of, of interviewing him for this podcast. And I'm just super, uh, super excited to, to share this conversation with the community. Enjoy. Silicon Valley Bank is a proud sponsor of Boston Speaks Up. For more than 35 years, Silicon Valley Bank has helped innovative companies and their investors move bold ideas forward fast. SVB provides targeted financial services and expertise through its offices at 53 State Street in downtown Boston and in Newton and innovation centers around the world. With commercial, international, and private banking services, SVB helps address the unique needs of Boston's innovators. Learn more at svb.com. Zach Stravideo here from Boston Speaks Up, and I'm here with Stopwatch Chief Growth Officer Dan Rosignol. Hey, Dan. Hey, how's it going, Zach? How'd I do on the last name? I didn't even ask you before. You did actually really well. Most people butcher that. So. <laughs> Rosignol, I got it. It's a ski company. I mean, come on. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> Uh, it's good to have you today, Dan. Uh, when you know J Jesse Bardo from Silicon Valley Bank sort of you know nominated you as someone that would be an interesting podcast guest, and my production coordinator shared like some of your background, and I was like, "Wow, like investor, like chief growth officer, like really interesting sort of like um, sort of early story, like originally from Haiti, grew up in Maine, like." All right, like I gotta like. There's so much I want to talk about with this dude, um, but just sort of table setter for listeners. Could you just share with them sort of what you're up to today? And obviously, that's a few different hats. But why don't you just share sort of like the roles you're playing today, and then we can kind of go from there. Yeah, absolutely, Zach. So today, um, interesting enough, I, my 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 wife is listening. I'll say my first hat is I'm a husband. Um, second hat is I'm a father, um, and then the other hats are of course. I am the chief growth officer of Stopwatch, which is a Bentonville startup focused on revolutionizing omni-commerce. Um, we work across different types of segments from CPGs to consumer health to consumer electronics. 
um, and we help them data visualize better, faster, and smarter. Um, when I'm not hacking away at Stopwatch, I am investing in early stage companies uh, across the country. I'm predominantly looking for underestimated founders. And notice I didn't say underrepresented, underestimated, because I believe underestimation is not about religion, race, gender, um, economic status. It's about you know folks who felt that they were not able to get easy access to capital, but have kind of outsized ideas. So I'm looking to make investments in them and, and carry their their dreams forward. And uh, and I've been doing that for, for a few years now. So I'm really excited about it. Very cool. I, I, I may embrace that and sort of give you credit for it. But the underestimated uh, sort of founders and aspiring founders, is that is that something that you have some peers and like minds that similarly are like, hey, this like underrepresented sort of verbiage is, is maybe a bit off? Yeah, and, and so as a really interesting analog to that is we all hear about diversity and inclusion as being the thing, and it is an extremely important thing to consider, but I also find that there's potentially we're polarizing other parts of that equation, which is if we look at um, one of the investments uh, I was initially going to make early on, I didn't make it for a variety of different reasons, but it was a founder who would have been underestimated, came from a fairly good family, uh, good-looking white male. Um, you'd wonder, you know, why wouldn't this guy get access to capital easily? Um, but the reality is, is that he was living within a corridor that just didn't have a lot of angel investors, didn't have a lot of VCs. And, um, you know, for me, those are the type of people I back. He's willing to put everything against it and, and try to be success successful. So, nice. you know, I think there are lots of founders that are like that. And again, if you, you know, uh, put it underneath the veil of, you know, race or, or religion or, you know, you know, um, I would say like economic, you know, issue, economic uh, situations, then you might miss out on opportunities. Yeah, well said. There was something we covered uh, in the pre-podcast Q&A with regards to sort of the types of startups you encourage uh, entrepreneurs to pursue, which is more the aspirational startups, like the ones that go after the problems that are more difficult to solve. And, and I, that seems to be in alignment with like, underestimated founders because maybe there's it, it, whether it's big or small sort of group of potential investors to capitalize a business if it's if it's really aspirational and it's going after a really challenging problem like not necessarily that you said this this in the pre-podcast q a but i would say like climate tech and, and technologies to reduce carbon emissions like very challenging i think we can agree as as fathers that want planet earth to be healthy super important right so can you talk a little bit about sort of the the aspirational focus that is part of your sort of like when you have your investment hat on is part of your investment thesis. Yeah, absolutely. And I like that you mentioned climate tech. I was actually an advisor for a while to a fast growing climate tech out of Norway. Um, just a fantastic company called choose um, offsetting, uh, allowing passengers to offset their flights um, at the path of purchase, which is absolutely aspirational. So much engineering goes into that. But if I just kind of step back, I say, you know, I've been kind of looking at things called pattern recognition. So in most cases, um, you know, venture capital is designed to uh, invest in things that they understand, right? So you find specialist VCs that say, well, I've been in the ed tech space for X amount of years, or I've been, you know, focused in on SaaS for X amount of years. And so I'm going to look at those deals exclusively. 
And what I'm finding is that your entrepreneurs are doing purpose-built, you know, innovation, which is basically, you know, I don't think they're trying to really change the world as much as they're trying to find an acquisition path. And it's not that it's the wrong answer. It's just that I don't think innovation really comes from pattern recognition. I think it comes from, you know, shaving against the grain and saying, look, this, I don't have, you know, a competitor that I can think of right now. And if you say that to a traditional VC, they're like, well, then I can't invest in it because I can't run comps. Right. And so mm-hmm. for me, I'm like, I want to invest in that because, you know, you don't, there's something you don't know. And when you finally realize that it's in your doorstep, you're going to have to work 10 X harder to be able to put that at bay. Like mm-hmm. those are really fun, you know, things and problems for me to tackle. The other thing too, in aspirational ventures is that if you look at my career, it's very non-correlated, right? So I started off in venture capital right out of college, working on a marketplace called I Stop Over, which was a competitor to Airbnb. And then if you fast forward all the way now, I'm in the commerce space. So I would have touched data to hedge funds. I would have touched, you know, usability research with user testing, which is just IPO to, you know, a couple months ago. I would have touched, you know, Clora, which was a two-sided life science marketplace, you know, and those are for just my professional career, not even, you know, mentioning the things I've invested in along the way. So I, I look for those type of aspirational um, opportunities. I love that. Follow-up question there would be, what were the surprises that you found as you were touching different sectors and areas where they're like, oh, wow, like there's not enough data-informed decisions here. Or wow, like this is all data-formed. Like it, just any sort of interesting takeaways and, and sort of outliers and sort of like what your expectation was going in and then what it ended up being. Yeah, and this might shock you, and I, and I still pinch myself with this, which is the biggest thing I've recognized that I did not think was possible are how similar every single one of those businesses really are at the core, right? And everyone comes and says, well, we're different. We have this new business model. This, you know, most entrepreneurs, if I sit them down and I do the Dan talk and I say, you're in business to make money. The only way to make money is to add value. The only way to add value is to understand problems. The only way to understand problems is to get out there and talk to people. Like, I can't make it any more simple than that. Um, And so it doesn't matter to me. And that's why I've been sector agnostic with my entire career. As a matter of fact, some of my mentors have said to me, like, Dan, is there ever going to be a point where you just say, you know what, I'm a SaaS guy and I'm only going to stay doing this And I'm like, no, because I can't live that way. Yeah, that's interesting. I I spent last night, sort of yesterday afternoon and evening at Endicott College, where I'm an entrepreneur in residence. And it sort of, there's office hours and it crescendos with an entrepreneurship club meeting. And it was was really cool. Like one of the the freshmen, they're starting to have more freshmen come in. And a lot of of students are starting to go to Endicott for entrepreneurship. Um, And... He was like, "Oh, have um, it was it was it was cool." It was, I mean, it's he's he's eighteen. Have you um, have you heard of SAS? And I was like, "Yes, I've heard of SAS." And he's like, and then uh, someone else was like, "Oh, what's SAS mean?" And I'm like, "Oh, software as a service." And so like he got to, so I was like, "Share with me like why it came across." And he was sharing like research into to SAS and and whatnot. And I share with him like the Mark Andreessen famously the the how you know software is eating the world article. I was like, "Why don't you share that article? Oh, you found it great. Share that on the." the group Slack channel and so on and so forth. And we were talking about it. And basically the reason I bring this up is I was saying to him and, and all the students in the room, actually, like if you just look at like a SaaS business model 
and the way that you build a good SaaS business model, you can build any business. Right. Like, and it's, and I got, you know, I went down the sequence of things. You talk to, you talk to pro, you find, you know, Eric Rise, lean startup style, like find the sort of most minimum viable way you can kind of give the product or service to those people, talk to them about it. Then when you're going to be measured for success, it's going to be like revenue, which really comes down to like what your MRR, your monthly recurring revenue. And just like, and it's just, it's that formula. If you go and you want to study SaaS businesses and study that formula, you could go. And I pointed at the young woman in the class who like wants to start a cup, cupcake business. I go, that SaaS logic is going to work for the cupcake business. Oh, and they were like, oh yeah. I'm like, it's, and you, you never, you always want to be cautious not to make it seem like to young people, like it's easy because it's not. You have to put a lot of work in. But if you're willing to put the work in, and I think you mentioned this in the pre-podcast Q&A, if you're passionate about it, and it like choose the thing you're passionate about put the energy in, show up, you can, you can get a lot done if you're diligent, you project manage yourself and, and, and you implement sort of good you know, dis- discipline in your life. So just kind of and relating thing, to what you said. One thing about that, Zach, that I want to just add in before we move on, which is there's a book called Range and it's by David Epstein. You know? And I would say that book changed my life to make me feel normal because what it talks about is this idea of savants versus generalists right? So golfers can be savants, right? But if you think about professional athletes that are football players, basketball players, baseball players, there's a good chance they played four or five different sports before actually picking that one, right? Like even, you know, they were generalists, you're saying? Yeah. So they were generalists and, you know, but, and the thing is, is like, because of being a generalist, they had optionality. And it's not that I'm not suggesting that people don't focus on one specific craft that they love and have passion. It's just when you don't accept that there are multiple ways and life is not linear, right? I think that's the biggest thing is even from my upbringing, right? My life is is absolutely not linear. Um, And it could have gone in multiple different areas, uh, multiple ways as well. So Range is a great book. I just uh, tagged it because I'm going to check it out and it looks like there's some articles on it and stuff too. So I'll have to check it out myself and share it with, with my students. Um, You just mentioned your upbringing. Let's, let's kind of get in there. Let's, let's talk a bit about where you were born and where you grew up, where you grew up and how you're, you know, you had a bit of a turbulent life early on. Um, Can you just sort of share a bit of that backstory? Yeah. And I will preface that um, it was about, Five years ago, where I finally got extremely proud and um, emotionally charged about my background, I've been hiding my background for quite a long time. And I think the reality was, as I went through a series of identity crises along the way. So here, here's how it goes, right? Is I was born in Haiti. Um, my mom died due to related childbirth. My father walked me to an orphanage in Port-au-Prince and effectively gave me up for adoption. The only challenge that, you know, I was facing at that time was I was malnutritioned. So there was a very good chance that I was not going to live. I had red hair. Um, and as you can, uh, if you do look me up on LinkedIn, you'll notice I'm black. So the chance of, you know, having red hair, not, not really good. Um, and I was adopted uh, with a family in central Maine, parents both white. Mom was a school teacher at a small private school. Dad was a linesman for a power company. So think about up at 5 a.m. every morning, back home around six, right? Um, and uh, they adopted another um, boy who was my brother from Haiti. And then they adopted a girl from Farmington, Maine, who was white. So immediately here we are, this really oddball family inside of central Maine. And I, 
you know, interesting enough. It wasn't until I was, you know, I would say seventh or eighth grade that I know I was black. And it was a shock to me. And I remember crying and thinking like, there's no way I'm black, you know, like, how's that possible? Um, and I ended up going to a really great school in Nova Scotia, Canada, got a degree in business, uh, started my first company before I graduated. And in fact, I dropped out of school to, to run that thing full time. Um, that company, uh, we were able to kind of pass off to our uh, our largest customer, consider like an acme hire type thing, get yeah. us all out of debt. We're young young kids that didn't know how to run a business. Yeah. Um, and then I went back and I got my degree. Um, my first job coming out of school was at a venture capital shop. So I'll pause there just because from the beginning to you know going to VC, and I'm sure we'll get into you know what that story was. I just want everyone to know that like you know it was. Ex- extremely challenging uh, in sports, I think is what saved me because that was the one place that I could be like everybody else. Yeah. And you played lacrosse? Yeah. So yeah. I was uh, junior year and this is a <laughs> one brag is I was the ma- uh, central main state player of the year. My yeah. junior year. I was, a, I was a short stick midi. I, you know, I, I crushed it in faceoffs. Um, so that was my thing. And I played soccer. I was, uh, that I was actually more notably, um, elite in soccer. I played in a bunch of different places, England being one of them. Cool. It was, uh, yeah. Soccer came naturally to you. Yeah. It it didn't, didn't hurt to be Caribbean. There you go. Yeah. As I mentioned you, uh, before we went live, soccer's come naturally to me and I played indoor soccer last night, but my 36 year old body is not responding as well as it once did. Uh, but I still got it. Like, it's just, it's like riding a bike. Um, it was, it was interesting. I didn't, didn't make too many mess ups with the ball on my feet. Um, state, so state player of the year, your junior year, what happened senior year? Ah, no, (laughs) I had to ask, you know, they, they say when you train someone to be better than you, right? Yeah. You know, Someone was better than me that year. Yeah. Um, I'm not mad. I, I, we still, I still did okay. But, yeah. uh, but you know, it was an honor. I, you know, I never, my first time I picked up a stick was when I was uh, in ninth grade. So yep. a lot of these folks, you know, were playing in, you know, junior high, grade school. Yeah. Um, coach gave me a stick, said, you can run fast, you know, just put yeah. the ball in the net. You're an athlete. <laughs> you're, a, you're a generalist. You're I was a generalist. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, no, it was, it was the same for me. I, I was soccer basketball baseball and i just i couldn't do the baseball practice thing every day just like there's only so many balls you could catch and you know balls you could hit and i literally had never played volleyball before but my best friend was the setter and i had gym class with him one semester and he's like dude you're an athlete you can jump like just i'm gonna throw the ball up and just slam it and he's like he's like yeah you should join the team i was like yeah i'm just gonna play volleyball now um but yeah, there you go. Being a generalist. Um, and that's probably a good, like, I, I really like your sports analogy and sort of like playing different sports for like generalist versus savant, because I think, yeah, like depend, it's, it's a good way to kind of do like, Oh, am I, my, my more generalist? Oh, I am. Well, okay. I can apply a certain skill set to many things. Um, which is also useful because like we can get into your kind of VC career in a moment and sort of, I mean, things change in this, like, there's a North star we may all want to achieve. Like I want to leave a legacy of that. I can be full of pride, you know, for, for my daughter uh, in order for me to do that and to continue to be successful in life and in business markets are going to change and, and opportunities that will, will all of a sudden reveal themselves and you have to have the agility to sort of pivot. 
Uh, and that's, I think, probably the biggest thing that like our generation has, you know, a, a good like a, for pretty well, done a pretty good job of that gener- generation, two generations ago. Really enough to pivot a ton. Like you're, you know, you mentioned your father was like, you know, worked on the lines for the u- utility company, right? Yeah, yeah. My my dad worked for UPS, uh, yeah. truck driver, thirty seven years. Like those Same. days are numbered. Thirty seven right? like, years. Yeah. years. Yeah, and it's crazy, man. When he retired, it just it it didn't hit me until my father retired, and this was less than five years ago. He retired, and I was like, wow. I probably am more successful in business because of my dad who drove for UPS than I am for like, like any other like influence I've had in my life. And, but, but what's interesting is like, cause I saw him get up and get, you know, every single day do the same thing. And it's interesting that that was, that was just sort of the more, a more common path, like in aggregate, like folks would just yeah. wake up at 5am go out. I mean, my dad was gone from like, you know, six thirty seven till seven o'clock at night every day. Right. And just, uh, it's really, I mean, we're living in a really interesting time where we can work from home. We can have flexibility. We can be with our, um, with our, you know, our, our partners and our, and our children more. If, if, if that's the, you know, the, the, the family, the home unit that we have, uh, but you gotta be on your toes. That's you right. Gotta be I agile. Mean- one thing I would I I would be remiss if I didn't say is if it wasn't for my my mom and dad doing that grind then I don't think I would be as successful as I am today and so there's a lot to be said for consistency most people think it's like this like bad word which it's yeah. like and that's not what I'm suggesting you can be a consistent generalist yeah. too you know yeah 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 and so like you know to watch you know my dad get up. And the one thing that, you know, he did always do is he showed up as well to my games, even if that meant that he was having to get out of work a little early and then maybe work the later shift somewhere else. And similarly with my mom, you know, my mom is probably one of the most successful entrepreneurs out there. So, you know, she didn't have, you know, a degree and, um, but ended up finding a way to get into the educational um, realm and then obviously level herself up along the way. But, you know, from nothing to becoming, you know, a school principal, you know, again, we're talking central Maine, right? So we're not talking a very hustle and bustle place with tons yeah. of optionality. So yeah. I think, you know, that's what I'm trying to teach my, my kids is that, you know, you can be consistently inconsistent and that's yeah. okay. Yeah, that's, yeah, well, well said. I, I'll share this with you later because today's, we're recording this on February 3rd. I have a few articles going live on, on built-in. And one of them is how an Ironman taught me the discipline to be a better entrepreneur. And part of the article is about like pace and in consistency, like, cause I equate, you know, the, in business and in training for any level sort of like endurance race, it's repetition and frequency consistency and finding that pace that you can sustain. And it's similar like that in business. Like I have, like, I don't try to overwork, find my pace. And then that pay, that consistent pace, like when, when the holidays come in December, like I'm able to downshift a little bit, like right around the holidays, but you kind of like, that's when you kind of catch up or, 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 or beat people towards the finish line, right? right? Like it's that, that energy you have in the last quarter mile of the race, like, which I happen to have a, a race I did a couple months ago. And I was like sprinting past a bunch of 20 year olds. And I'm like, I've pay, I've worked out my pace and I have plenty of, en- I have plenty in the tank left. And I'm going to kick it into another gear here at the end. And then I'm going to chill. 
Um, and I think that you think you nailed it. Like the discipline of just showing up consistently and also finding out like what, what cadence of showing up consistently is good for you. That's it. Right. You're hitting the nail on the head. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, so let's, let's talk about you fit you sort of your first, um, job and in, 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 was it an internship at a VC and like how you kind of got into like the, the venture world and, and what that yeah. was like. Yeah, absolutely. So another interesting one too is, um, when I graduated, uh, I really didn't know what I wanted to do, but I knew I wanted to have a generalist strategy because I had already operated a business. I had already raised capital for that business. I had already had, you know, employees that were coming in and working with us, contractors. Um, and so I ended up applying for an internship, paid internship with a firm called Brightspark Ventures out of Toronto. And I remember applying and then getting a quick automated message that said, sorry, like all of the, you know, the, the, the roles are full. You know, I was like, well, all right, wasn't expecting that. Um, so I ended up uh, hounding and, you know, tracking down uh, one of the, the key, key people over there. And um, they were like, all right, well, you seem like you're kind of motivated to be here. So come in, you know, after the holidays, because it would have been, I think, you know, December. And then I started in January. Um, and so that experience uh, was the biggest eye opener for what I would say people have this mystique around venture, right? They think it's like this, just like, you know, everyone's rich, everyone's like crushing it. Everyone's just like, you know, living life and flying in private jets and just like investing and throwing money around. And it's not that. As a matter of fact, I would actually argue that venture, especially inside of studios, so the studio model is when a venture capitalist decides to bring in a company, incubate them inside, and then hopefully prop them up through their network and then maybe push them out and they can kind of reside on their own. Sure. So Bright's like, like part had a... Yeah, and that, uh, like, like a Kogo Labs. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. 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 Antler Lab, you know, yeah. Antler is yeah. doing it as well. Yeah. So great, great model. By the way, side part of that, I yeah. think after I'm done operating, I would love to do a studio model. I just, um, I talk, I've talked partner? to Jesse about this all the time. And um, so do I. So it sounds like we should we should talk offline about that. Yeah, totally. They may not story. already have some wheels in motion in that direction. So let's well, table. Then I'm, I'm coming after you. Um, there we go. <laughs> so so uh, I, I just, I got an opportunity to work on a marketplace. And so this was, this was before anyone really thought about marketplaces as being something, right? And the interesting thing is, as I was working on this marketplace, I was saying to myself, you know what, there's no way I would ever allow someone to stay in my personal residence. I would never, you know, go to someone else's home, you know, and sleep in someone else's bed. And, yeah. um, and then if you fast forward, I got married in Carmel, California, and we, you know, we flew our entire family to Pacific Grove. And guess where we put them? In an Airbnb. Yeah. Yeah, right? So yeah. it's like, yeah. you know, how, how it's crazy. And, and yeah. I got out of that, you know, company a little too soon. They ended up having an exit. Um, and it was, you know, it was, it was a good, good outcome. Uh, but the reality was, is like this VC shop recognized that you got to build from within, you got to build durable business models. Um, and then from there, I ended up going on and, and working, you know, as an operator. Uh, if you want me to dovetail into that, I can, but, uh, but that yeah. was really the VC experience was get a bunch of smart, you know, people involved on a project. Yeah. And the project may become a, a business. We don't know. Yeah. It may become a business. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, like I said, it was an extremely awesome opportunity. 
That's cool. Why don't you chat a little bit about sort of like going the the operator route? But first, quick follow up question on the exit for that company: where, 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 who, who gobbled them up? Where, where did yeah. that? Where did that nine make sense? flats, nine yeah. flats out of uh, Europe gobbled them up. So uh, it was I stop over was the the portfolio I was on. They were uh, focused in on sort of the home share room share thing, but instead of vacations, and at the time that's kind of where you know uh, Airbnb was going, which was like you know go to New York, like go you know go to LA, go to San Francisco. What I stop over was saying the World Cup is here, or the mm. Olympics is here, or Bono is here, and you're going to have you know not enough hotel rooms in order to support those events. So we're going to go buy up the inventory, you know, and get people mm-hmm. to come on our platform. So in South Africa, that's how far back this was. Mm-hmm. Uh, when the World Cup was in South Africa, we were one of the largest sort of accommodation platforms uh, in in that area because we pre you know, the, 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 uh, world cup happening, we had already spoken to a bunch of people that own villas and second homes mm. and we got them all on our platform. And if it wasn't for the world cup, I don't think yeah. this thing would have taken off. Well, what a great go to market strategy and what fortuitous timing that it was in that period where it was one of the four years where the world cup was going to be. Cause that's the most ideal event for the, for the growth um, right. plan sort of execution that you the just founder was from South Africa as well. That's something people don't know. So like, you know, that's like, like, that's, all the that's, moments, all the things, happen they just intersected rather, rather, yeah. um, rather yeah. perfectly really. Um, uh, that's awesome. So, so then were you, did you dip, did you lean into some of those companies and, and really find yourself enjoying sort of like the go to market and like, sort of like more, lean in sort of growth kind of revenue driving roles. And then is that why like you started to kind of think of, Oh, I wouldn't mind being a bit more of an, uh, an operator. And, and yeah, yeah how, how did that kind of evolution happen? So I was actually, after my internship, I was offered the opportunity to stay um, full time. Right. Um, the challenge that I was facing was again, and I use that analogy of my wedding, which is I couldn't conceive this was a real thing. You know, and so all I kept hearing from everybody was, hey, there's a thing called cloud computing. There's a thing called SaaS. There's a thing called, you know, like virtualization. And I was like, well, what is that thing? Right. So I ended up going and joining a company uh, called Geminar, which interesting is like a 12 or 15 year success. They just was a, they were acquired last year as well. It was a big year last year. Um, yeah. So the interesting thing is um, they were focused on disaster recovery. So virtualization from physical servers to virtual servers, they were focused on big telcos. So some of the relationships that I oversaw while I was at Geminar, and by the way, when I was at Geminar, I worked you know, across all of Latin America and the Caribbean for about four and a half years. So my patch was like Colombia, Costa Rica, Guatemala, Honduras. And then we built that one out. And then my patch was Dominican, Puerto Rico, Jamaica. Um, and we built that out as well. And so what I found in that particular opportunity was there was going to be a world where, you know, um, the idea of using um, off-premise solutions and using tools that didn't require physical hardware, it was going to be something real. And again, it was early, but it turns out, as we all see, um, that we're on Zoom today, um, that that is in fact a, a real thing. So that company really propelled me to this notion of business acumen. 
So like there's a difference between working as a, in a startup out of college and just hacking on everything and being on multiple projects to actually buckling down and saying, what are the core tenants, Dan, that you're going to live by to build the foundation of your career? And I can share those four tenants with yeah, you. Please, the first please. one is I think about people. So it's all about the person. It's all about the people that I'm working with. The second has always been about this idea of, you know, what is the process in which things are being done? So anyone that's ever reported to me, um, they will know that Dan has this thing about playbooks and standard operating procedures. Like I am vigilant, maniacal about building those. Um, the next is technology itself, which is should be an enablement factor. So like, how is technology making your life, your customers' lives, you know, and the whole ecosystem better? And the one that most people forget about, or I think omit, because they don't really want to own it, is accountability. So another thing that people will tell you that reported to me on, on day zero, we all have metrics. You know, I don't care if we started this business yesterday, there's metrics that we should live by. Yep. Because we all need baseline. Every yep. human, I think, craves baseline. Yep. Where am I at? you know, yeah. and how do I get better? Yeah. And so that is where I went from being, you know, a jack of all trade inside of a startup to being a guy, you know, when, when I left, I was a director of global alliances. And so I've worked across, you know, in at that company, some of the largest telcos on the planet, you know, were my, you know, sort of areas of responsibility. And so if you can imagine that the, the level of acumen going even within those businesses and trying to keep up, and I would say not even keep up, trying to outpace Right. Um, and so it's just it was a phenomenal experience. But that got me into business. And then from there, I went, you know, and immediately tackled this concept of selling data to hedge funds. So I was, you know, had moved from Toronto to Silicon Valley. Um, and I was working with a startup that was basically doing how do we collect data using mobile devices and transmit that to hedge funds and banks who effectively are using it to make predictions, you know, to make calls, you know, to go long or go short, which in investment, keep the investment for a long period of time or try to like get rid of the investment for a short period of time and not to get too technical on long and short stuff. Um, but the reality was, is that got me to my next opportunity. And that next opportunity was to get into this concept of user experience. That was, again, another major milestone for me when you know, to think about just how does the user interact with products, technologies, like it's a really interesting thing. And you know, lo and behold, usertesting.com, right, own that space. And we're just recently rewarded for doing well in the space. Um, and, and I can keep going, but I, I don't know if that's a good place to. No, that's it. Well, I mean, I'll, I'll keep, I'll keep you, this is good. And I'll keep you kind of going in this, in this direction. I, in that user testing space, am I correct or a little, a little off and like almost in, by frame of reference on sort of like app testing and, and user testing of products. I, I think of applause. Yeah. yeah so you are bang on. Yeah. You're yeah. bang on. So the thing about user testing and the reason why it attracted me was we democratize the voice of customers. Yeah. You really, so the slogan at the end of the day, ringing the bell was human insights at scale. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So like we took people from their homes. We were pre COVID. If you actually think about yeah. this, we were so pre COVID because we would actually mail out video recorders for people to have their phones and yeah. to go through an app or to yep. go through a certain workflow and to yeah. provide real unfiltered feedback. So if you think about my role there, I was the head of partnerships. And so I was overseeing partners 
that were working across, you know, digital agencies to big consultancies, you know, and they had brands that, you know, we've all used today that they wanted to know, should we put this hamburger navigation on this mobile phone here? You know, and like a user would actually say, it's really hard to understand. Why is that there? This is annoying. I can't get through this, you know? (laughs) And so it was just an, an incredible experience. And that was just an incredible company as well. So at that point in your career, you've, all right, so you've gone initial sort of initially in Haiti, but, and, and by the way, how, like at what age or how long did it take before your family adopted you in Maine when you left Haiti? Yeah, I think at 24 months. 20, yeah, so, so like I, first was two years Fran- like, I was speaking yeah. Creole. Um, I okay. was speaking Creole, but I, you know, if you ask me, do I remember? Um, no, no, I don't. But interesting thing is when I was in, in high school, uh, going into high school, um, my parents had me go back and work in Haiti at oh, the cool. orphanage that yeah. I was um, part of. Um, and, and so very life altering experience. I was definitely a privileged child, even in Maine and then recognizing what life could have been. So while I, you know, wow. left early, there was a smell in the air, you know, not to get too morbid, but there's a place that they took me to where they didn't have a proper burial ground. And so the bodies, you know, are just mm-hmm. like, they're there and they'll eventually go into the ground. But for the most part, they're there. And I remember going by that and there was a smell that I actually could like, rem- you know, like, like, it was I familiar. Before. yeah. And, and I was, you know, I was told, of course, where I was from, I don't want to say, you know, the gutter, but like, yeah. it's like, I was not from riches, you know? Yeah. So I would have been exposed to, to things like that early, early in my life. Wow. That's crazy. I get it. Get me a little, little choked up just thinking about, about that and just the, the, the chance, the chance in, in life and, and the, lovely um parents that you have and uh they're they're awesome so just shout out to your shout out to your folks um so you make it so you go to central maine then you go up to nova scotia for school uh yeah. and then it's direct to san francisco toronto oh so all right then it's to toronto so you get so you do the toronto thing which is a really interesting tech hub then you go to san then you go to the bay area that's right and so i'm curious like what were you always drawn back to New England, right? Because you were, you, you were raised in Maine mm. and obviously we could talk about Boston and sort of the venture capital sort of per capita and, and the, you know, the yeah. density of, of, um, of, of innovation and all the technologies hiding in plain sight in Boston that are really driving like a lot of global, the, the global economy. Mm. Uh, so what was like, talk about that transition back to, to, to Boston. Yeah. So yeah. let me just, it was, um, the hardest, easiest decision I ever made. So it was hard because as I'm sure you can imagine, guy from Haiti doesn't love snow. New England's full of it. We just got 26 inches, you know, yeah. a couple of days ago. Fun. <laughs> um, but, but in California, um, and I love the state of California and I have lots of friends in California. My wife, she's Canadian from New Brunswick, Canada. And so she, her family is Eastern as well. We never saw a world where our kids were not inside of New England going through at least up to grade eight. You know, like we just didn't see a world. We just think that fundamentally, and this is a shout out for New England, fundamentally the educational experience is, you know, second to none. Right. I just, I firmly believe that. As a matter of fact, I'm a board of trustees at Roger Williams University. 
And I'm the youngest board of trustees. And I think nice. right now I'm the only black male on the board as well. The reason why I took that appointment is because I wanted to further influence the uh, education. But yep. this is a little bit later stage, obviously. So that yeah. if my kids want to stay in Rhode Island, we're in Providence. Yeah. They want to stay in Rhode Island. They yeah. have Roger yeah. Williams as an opportunity there, you know, as That's well as right. University of Rhode Island, which my wife works there as well. So we're so relatable here because number one, I lived in Los Angeles for five and a half years. And I, I sort of mentioned this to you pre-podcast, but it was definitely like once our daughter was born, she spent about the first year of her life out in LA. Like we, like we knew the sort of education that and, and sort of upbringing that our daughter could have in New England was really su- superior to what we felt like she could have certainly in, in SoCal and, and probably most any other places. So very much agree with sort of your sentiments um, there for, for, for sure. Um, and then, yeah, similarly, I, I walked, I walked down to Endicott, like I and sort of like introduced myself three years ago and was like, Hey, I'm Zach. I live in Beverly now and I'm part of this community and I'm an entrepreneur and you have an entrepreneurship center. Yeah. I let's hang out. Uh, and in that, and it's blossomed into a really interesting relationship and it's similar, similar mindset of mine is like, I, I'm, I like working with young people, so it's very rewarding and fulfill, you know, it's fulfilling work. But I also think about my daughter and just like the opportunity to sort of like, Hey, like this is, this is right here and you may want to go somewhere else, but like, this is right here. And I'm, I'm also just like keeping myself sharp on like how a higher, like what an innovative higher education sort of strategy is yeah. an implementation looks like so that when she is looking at schools, I have, you know, I'm informed <laughs> when I'm, you know, when I'm sharing my opinions. And I think yeah. that that's why I, I did it as well. And, you know, my kids go to a school that is a French first school. So they speak cool. French all day long and only made think, about an hour of English. Um, and so to even get that in New England is just phenomenal. Like when you yeah. think about it, you know, like that's, that's just cool. a treat. And, and there's a sister school in Cambridge for this same school. So should, you know, we move to Boston, which yeah. is, you know, might happen in, in the not so distant future. Um, you know, we can just put, keep them in the same track, which is just that's cool. phenomenal. And so the school they're in is in the Providence area. Yeah. So they're, nice. they're in the Providence area. We, so I've been spending a lot of my time similar to you with Endicott Brown university. So okay. I rolled the trek behind Brown last year. I made eight investments and, uh, three of the eight investments were, uh, alumni from Brown university. Cool. Nice. Um, and it sounds like moving towards Boston, you'd have nice continuity for, for your children in that French, um, French first sort of speaking school. And you mentioned me pre-podcast that you have, you have some, some property in Chelsea, which, you know, near and dear to my heart. That's where all the videos are from. Um, but I would love if you, could you just share a bit of like your kind of like your, your strategy and approach to like acquiring that, that that building in Chelsea. I, I just think it's pretty neat, yeah. like the pragmatic way you, you went about it. Yeah. So here's something I want all entrepreneurs to hear who's starting tech companies or want to work in a startup. Guess what? There's no such thing as a pension plan. And some of them don't have 401ks. Okay. Yeah. So for me, I had to find traditional routes for retirement. Yeah. Okay. So I started investing in real estate a few years ago as a LP, a limited partner inside of a real estate fund. 
that um, did really well. We owned a 64 unit building in Dorchester. Um, and <clears throat> right at the time when I think Amazon uh, mentioned they were gonna be doing sort of robotic jobs in, in the area, and um, I think that would've been in Seaport, um, you know, that building got sold. And I decided to take all of that money and to continue to you know, roll that back into real estate. And so I ended up you know, going to Chelsea because I'd spent a ton of time in Latin America. I just loved the food and the culture yeah. and just like everything Chelsea is, Boston proper is not. No. And I love it's my a melting pot in Chelsea. It's like, it's just not that. And so no. if you like the big brownstone, very high end luxury, which is, I, who doesn't like that? You're not, it's not Chelsea. You get yeah. great colorful houses. You get, you know, people that, you know, English is definitely not the first yeah. language. Tons of diversity. You know, it's yeah. totally diverse. And so there was this massive building and this massive lot. And I looked up in the sky and I could see cranes creeping yeah. in. And I was like, all right, so what's going on right now? Oh, COVID. Okay. COVID yeah. has just started. So these guys want out of this yeah. building. And so I did, you know, my own sort of due diligence as similarly as I do on investing in tech. I did the same thing with the property. I found out the motivations of the sale. I found out how long it was held. I found out just a lot of great information so that when I went into the negotiation, I gave my realtor and I said, give them this price. And he looked at me and said, they will not accept this price. And I said, take, give them this price. And, you know, lo and behold, he gives me a phone call and says, I, I don't know if you have a horseshoe somewhere you know, across <laughs> the body, but they accepted the price and congratulations. You now have a, you know, a very expensive home. Uh, so that's how it all worked out. <laughs> that's cool. And then, uh, and then does the, is it, it's a multi-unit? So there's, so, there's yeah, a lot the of families four unit, there? Four unit building, um, it, you know, four unit building. And one of the things is I, I, having come from slum, I always said that I will never be a slum lord. So we've, you know, done a lot of value add with that building. As a matter of fact, probably more value add than our GCs have told us to do. But I said, mm -hmm. you know, one of the books I read was, you know, and I think it was maybe Guy Kawasaki around just like, um, you know, if you're going to invest, you know, act as if you would have to live with inside of your investment, you know? And so for me, I've always said if, if things, you know, go south in any of our ventures, my wife loses her job, like I lose my job. We might have to live in that one bedroom, yeah. you know, that we wanted to yeah. rent out. So we make it as beautiful as if I would live in it because I want my tenants to like also live in beauty. Just because you're renting doesn't yeah. mean that you can't live in good beauty. That's how yeah. I feel. Right on. And then you came in and you didn't, you did probably, you did the opposite of Jack the Rents. <laughs> uh, as a yeah. matter of fact, the first time, I didn't even touch them. Yeah. I just like, you know, and I actually didn't touch them. And then I, I took utilities on, you know, for my tenants. So I, I paid for their utilities cool. because around that time COVID was happening and nobody knew if they were going to have their job. No one knew like what was going on. And I remember just walking in and just seeing everyone's faces. And yeah. so like, I'm a human too. And so when I see someone's face that looks tired, that looks concerned, that looks like they're not like sure about their future. And then the one thing that they're doing to me is they're looking at me as a new owner and saying, you know, like, you know, what can we do? To, what can we do to stay? What can we, and I just like, you don't need to do anything. Just, just do you and then we'll give it a year. So for the entire year, you know, I took all their utilities. I didn't touch the rents. Um, and I was very happy, happy to do that. That's awesome. That's really cool. And that is a very valuable uh, lesson to entrepreneurs with regards to like, there aren't traditional, you know, pensions, 401ks. So yeah, you, you have to have a, uh, 
you have to have a retirement plan, sort of, you know, savings, you know, sort of, you know, you know, hopefully some sort of appreciation strategy on, on the money that you're saving. Um, money market accounts, not going to get it done. No, um, <laughs> no. I got like 200 bucks in my 401k. You know, yeah. um, I, so I, I, to yeah. be honest, like I just, it, yeah. you know, it just, it doesn't work for my lifestyle. Yeah. Yeah. Likewise. I'm in, I'm you know, similar, similar boat. Um, Cool. So maybe we, I'd love to talk about stopwatch a bit and sort yep. of the, what you're doing exactly and what you're excited about sort of moving forward. Yeah. So let's talk about the beginning with them first. Yeah. yeah. So I was in Martha's Vineyard and I got a phone call from someone that I, I like and I trust. And he says to me, he says, look, there's this company in Bentonville, Arkansas, um, this uh, female founder, Megan Bauman, uh, Bowman rather, um, you know, she's doing something really awesome inside of the uh, data analytics space, but relevant to commerce, relevant to omnichannel, relevant to like all of these different kind of buzzwords. And I was like, hold on, you had me at, you know, female founder, and then you had me at Bentonville, right? Because yeah. like, yeah. I don't know if most of you know, Bentonville is the HQ of Walmart. Yeah. So if you ever go to Bentonville, like it's Walmart country. And mm. so um, I ended up taking a phone call with Megan and recognizing that Stopwatch was years ahead of their time. And what I mean by that is we're now in a world where big brands and retailers can't think about the digital transformation. They have to do the digital transformation. And if they haven't already started that process, they're behind. So Stopwatch at its core is an omni-channel SaaS company. And we focus on providing visibility for our customers, which are CPGs, consumer electronics, direct-to-consumer brands, consumer health. So think about Sanofi, who owns Gold Bond, you know, like those type of companies, right? Um, better visualize their data. Mm make sense of their data through multiple sales channels. And we use a game theory, basically saying that you can be hands on keyboard and see pricing and inventory availabilities at the speed of now and make decisions sitting in a dashboard. And so if you think the genesis of the business was, and you know, the, the uh, founder, you know, was, you know, tied closely to the founding team at Tableau. So yeah, we had, a I was just going to say data visualization, like, like yeah, Tableau. So <laughs> her, her brother was, um, I, I believe her brother was uh, one of the co-founders there. That's perfect. Um, and so there was, uh, there was just an incredible um, opportunity for her to go after that. So she started the concept in Seattle, moved her family to Bentonville and then just, you know, immersed herself in, in that space. Since, you know, uh, coming on, you know, Stopwatch, what people don't understand is I actually was on the board first. So I was an investor. I put capital in. Then they asked me to join the board. And then because I was on the board, I could actually see, like, you know, more holistically where this business was going. And the one area that I thought that they could use the most, you know, support with was the one area that I've been, you know, building my craft around, which was go to market. You know, and so I became the chief growth officer, not because I was looking for a job. As a matter of fact, I was already employed as uh, running operations at another company. It was because I believe that they had built the technology to a point where we needed to start paying back the tech debt. 
yeah. the only way to do that is to build a business team. And so since yeah. me joining, we've already started to scale the group. Um, we've had our first sales kickoff, which happened in Bentonville in January. You know, we're, you know, building, you know, uh, we've built over a million, you know, um, you know, multi-million dollar pipelines very, very quickly. Like there's just, yeah. you know, tons of opportunity that, that we have been able to, to do. And it's not because of me, it's because the company just needed to organize yep. the strategy. And that's generally where I'm most potent is helping, yeah. you know, entrepreneurs organize the go-to-market strategy. It, interesting. It, the tech, the platform itself, is it, does it inform or help execute media buying? And are you going direct to brand and what's like, I, cause I'm familiar with this market pretty well. Like, are you, yeah. it can sometimes be challenging and almost it's fortuitous to just go direct to brand if you can. And then almost, you know, agencies then kind of follow suit. And they're like, oh, it, we go direct yeah. to brand. Yeah. So we work cool. directly. If you're a big CPG, think about like a general mills, like yeah. we work directly with them, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, and then they have category managers that run different lines of business. Sure. So we take private data that they yep. have and we match that with public data. Yep. So we're enabling them to be able to see decisions that they need to make in real time based on how the data is trending. So for an example, so if you would, noted, would this be probabilistic? That, right? Yeah, I think, yeah, yeah. it would be a probabilistic it, approach. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's probabilistic, but I think, think about it as proactive alerting. Sure. Think yeah. about a world where most, you know, CPGs had to be reactionary, right? Mm -hmm. Or they were getting data through yeah. multiple feeds and then they'd have to mash it together yeah. and then have to make sense of it. Well, and it's later moving. and things maybe have changed by then. This is what happened in the, in the TV ad measurement space. Which I follow that space a bit like Nielsen just lost its accreditation. They you know, still, you know, not, I mean, as recent as like in the last couple of years, but you know, five, six years ago, like Niel Nielsen would just, it just seems so odd to me that Nielsen would say six weeks after an ad aired, here's like, here's, the data as per a 25,000 person panel. And then there was this company actually that I got invested in and, and supported called iSpot. And they were like, well, if you could just fingerprint every ad that airs and show it up in real time and give some data on it, like you can confirm, you can tell the brands like, here's where it aired. And you could give, you give them like real time intelligence. They can yes. make, they can make decisions quicker. Uh, so very, like that, that seems like a pretty, compelling uh, model. And then I imagine I'm like, how much is in-housing helped like brands and in, 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 like, in, and obviously you're talking at the level of, you know, sort of big CPD brands, uh, but is sort of the way you're, are you embedded? Like, are you being embedded in as like a, as kind of a, as a, as part of that, like central nervous system that these sort of yeah. in-house in kind of agencies at the brand are, are building? Yeah, I mean, while it's not our core business, we are oftentimes seen as an augmentation to the team, right? So like we embed ourselves through what we call member success. So we're doing, we're using words a little bit different. Most people call it customer success. We call it member success because we actually believe you're joining a community when you join Stopwatch. And so we don't call our customers member or customers, we call them members. And so our member success team goes out and their number one job is to continue to add value so that the customer or our member is able to do their job. 
Because I think that's the biggest thing is like, if you also have to interpret all this information, if you also have to go find it, aggregate it, mash it together, that's a, unless you have, you know, thousands, you know, or hundreds of different like data science, you know, from analytics folks to just, you know, analysts to just like, you know, business people interpret the information. It's a really, it's, a, it's, a, it's hard. It's extremely hard. And, and you're selling through Amazon, you're selling through walmart.com, you're selling through Target, you're selling on your own website, you're selling, you know, in store, right? So like we connect all of that, you know, and, and that's where for us, we are unified omni-commerce analytics. Yep. That's really cool. Uh, what's, what's next? Like, what are the opportunities and is it to create, so I, I'm thinking growth strategy right now, is there upsell and just creating more value for your existing customer base? or are there new verticals or customer sets that you're going after? Yeah, you know, I think all of the above, where I see, so as a growth leader, where am I focused, right? Yeah. So my, my core tenants for the remainder of the year is we need to help the industry first before we help ourselves. So we need to educate the industry on the possibility to be looking at multiple data streams at the scale of now. Yep. And if we can do that, then, you know, we can get ourselves into really unique conversations. So historically, our core customers were traditional CPG. We've now unearthed opportunities in D2C brands. Think like, you know, you've got brands, you know, Kim Kardashian comes out with a brand. Yeti comes out with a brand. Like there are all of these other, you know, great companies you can work with outside of, and I obviously we want to work with the well-knowns of the Unilevers and Procter and Gamble's of the world, but yeah. there's also the, the, the other companies that need help, right? And they tend to be profitable a lot sooner. They yeah. tend to be able to bolt into social media a lot easier. They yeah. tend to become more organic and iconic than, you know, buying a, you know, buying a traditional brand that we all have heard of, right? Yeah. So for us, it's first to educate Secondly, it's to provide packaging in which speaks to multiple players. So um, not a plug for Domo, but I love Domo. And the reason why I loved what Domo did was that Domo created a universe for the CEO. They created a universe for the head of sales, a universe for the head of customers, a universe for the CTO. And so like we're doing the same thing, but in the retail and commerce space is we're saying we're providing a home in so we'll package offering that if you are an executive inside of these companies this is what you need to see this is your war room if you're a practitioner that has to make sure that you're buying and purchasing and you're in supply logistics you know like you need quick actionable insights we're going to be your home as well so part of this year is going to be for us to like you know determine which places we're most primed to work in and just often, you know, we've grown, you know, over 400% since last year. And we, ha and, and we hadn't had a commercial team. So we now have a commercial team and we're going to be building on the back of an extremely strong engineering group. And so that's what we're going to focus in on. Productization, packaging, ideal customer profiles, buyer personas, really unpacking the reasons why, you know, we have the right to exist. Very cool. And is it no shortage of inputs that you can take in, like in terms of the data inputs from your, from your customers? Yeah. Like you can, it, yeah, go ahead. So we uniquely, most companies hear the word APIs and yeah. integration. So like you mentioned a few, you know, data feeds that we actually, you know, take in. So 
Um, what we've done is we've said APIs are great, but we want to get all of the data and even throw it in like, you know, cold storage scenario where yeah. at some point you might need access yep. to some of that information. So if you've heard about the terminology like data lakes, right? Yeah. So our ability to not, you know, to get at the data at another point in time to answer a question. Cause I think that's where the industry has transitioned. We used to be in a world where data for data sake. Now we're in a different world where it's like, before I pull any data, at all, I'm going to ask a question and then I'm going to understand how do I get the answer to that question? Because it might be a combination of data, but it might be a combination of something else, right? And so like, how do you pull all of that together? Yeah. And so that's where I think Stopwatch is in this very unique moment in time where everybody is trying to answer questions. But ironically, no one has really, I don't see a clear owner in the space that has said, we can do all of this for you. Right. I've seen point solutions, right? Mm -hmm. That say, if all you want to answer is pricing, well, there's companies out there that can just help you with pricing mm -hmm. or inventory control and availability. Great. But if you want to see across the gamut and you want to be sales channel agnostic, I don't see any other player that's really doubling down as much as Stopwatch is doubling down in that space. That's awesome. Uh, the, uh, uh, there's, there's so I have like so many more kind of questions kind of just in, in sort of the, the weeds of the, the space here. Like, it seems to me that stopwatch is taking a bit of a, like from a bit of a platform approach to this platform. market. Right. And so I guess just riffing here, I'm just, cause I'm trying to orient my, myself a bit and sort of like how some of those point solutions would play friendly sure. with stopwatch. So like, for example, there's a company in, um, YouTube advertising called Precise TV and they have a few mach machine learning models and they're like the they're the best contextual ad targeting company in YouTube specifically because they focused on being Copa compliant and helping brands target um, kids and therefore now with the cookie going away and and uh, brands looking to really kind of almost be compelled to need to embrace uh, contextual advertising non-personally identifiable um, uh, sort of data inputs, the, um, the precise TV sort of point, you know, solution is, is expanding out to all sorts of brands like Jaguar, et cetera. Um, yep. and they're able to do an audit uh, they'll, they'll take in, you know, data from, from a, from a company that's spending millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions on YouTube, whatever it might be. Yep. And, identify like media wastage and then basically like prescribe, like, here's where you should buy. Yeah. How would stopwatch like work, like work well, so like work well with precise and would, would, would precise be able to plug into stopwatch or would it be that the company would just have like, or, or the company more that is used utilizing stopwatch, maybe invite, like how would they invite and co-mingle yeah. like those, the, like the solutions there? Yeah, I think, um, so I, I will not skirt the question, yeah. but I might make a different analogy sure. um, in this that'll possibly help you. So there's a wonderful company uh, out of the, the Boston area called Profitero. And Profitero is, you know, getting access to phenomenal pricing data for mm -hmm. CPG, right? You go on their website, they've got everybody, right, that they're working through. And so our hat is phenomenally, you know, tipped to Profitero. Interesting enough, our customers have us take Profitero information and blend that inside of Stopwatch. 
Okay. And so we effectively also take this, you mentioned Nielsen. We've got yeah. Nielsen, we've got NPD, we've yeah. got SAP, like you name yeah. it. Like we, what we've noticed is that data's messy, right? Yeah. And when it's coming at you in multiple places. So if you think about your, init- your initial question, if the customer is interested in getting that source of data in and making use of it to make decisions on what they want to do for inventory controls, what they want to do for like uh, alerts on like, you know, price pricing influx, you know, what they want to do for positioning in certain channels. So maybe by getting that data, they've noticed that Amazon's a better place for them to spend time than it is another channel. Um, Then yes, we would be, you know, a great relationship there. We really, you know, just focus on our customer telling us their use case, which is, my boss has all of these things and all of these data feeds that they want us to all be aware of and track and manage. I can't possibly do that with all the other things I have going on. Can you help us make sense of this? Can you help us normalize the data? So if you think about product catalogs, if you've got thousands of SKUs, how do you normalize all of that information in one central pane so that you can see those product SKUs trending through your Kroger channel all the way to your target, you know, and to your Amazon. Like we take all of that. We take reviews. So if there are reviews happening on products and that's going to provide some sort of, you know, influx on purchasing, um, then we can tell our customers, Hey, this is, this is a popular thing happening. You know, if you're in like, you know, the toy space and it happens to be around, you know, the holidays, there's reviews that are spiking for this particular, you know, toy. Well, you might want to push inventory in this region as a result of that. So there's all of those things that we can do. That's interesting. So is your software business? Software. Huh? Software. Yeah. Yeah. Your software business. How much is there like a consult? It sounds to me there's a bit of a consultative, consultative layer on top of that. Is that table stakes to getting the most out of working with stopwatch or is that yeah. is that case by case no it's table stakes okay. because yeah. we want to understand business so one thing so one of the reasons why i joined stopwatch was because th- there's this analogy of going fast but slow so most of my background has been super fast right so like quick like we're scaling we're moving you know at light speed And this particular opportunity says, we might not need thousands of customers. We might not need hundreds of customers in order to really make a dent in, you know, and provide great value for for everyone involved. We might need, you know, a few dozen. And when you have a business model like that, what for us is most important is expansion revenue and making sure we don't have churn. So last year alone, I believe it was a little under 60% of our customers expanded within that year itself, which is phenomenal. That's awesome. You know? yeah. So, you know, and we have a hundred percent customer retention rate right now, which means we, we haven't lost yeah. the customer. Which means you you truly are embracing that inter like an internal role where you're like really embedded. You're embedded, we're embedded. with the team. Yeah. Cause we're sticky. We're dealing with private data. We're, we're dealing yeah. with really important information. So we're very, very sticky. So it's funny, like most, when we have companies come at us and say, well, like we haven't heard very much about you guys. Like we don't, we can't read so much about you on the, on the way. And it's funny because like only until now have we ever like, you know, uh, we've always been an engineering shop. We've always been a highly skilled, you know, group that cares about the tech first. And Megan, her vision was 
you know, and not that we're commoditizing business because that's not, that's hard too. But it's like, we got to get that tech relationship onboarding, enabling a customer to be successful first. And if we can do that, we can take those experiences and then we can hire someone like a Dan and hopefully Dan can go in and, you know, spread it to the masses. Interesting. Uh, we have, we, have a, we have a bit more time, but as we're coming up on time, like one of the things that like listeners have, have given me feedback over the years, one, one, one of which has been like, oh, like, you know, it'd be interesting to know if com- the companies are hiring. And it seems to me like before you tell me if you are and what positions, like what I'm hearing is as you're evolving beyond like an engineering first company, which is a you know, prudent approach at first, it sounds like customer support slash customer success is an interesting area um, okay. and, and sort of is that, is that's right. And then sort of like more like, earnest sort of discipline, like go to market sales efforts. Um, where, where have you like ratcheted up on the talent side and where are you, are, you know, are you currently hiring? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, we are like, we are hiring. Okay. So we'll just say that, (laughs) um, we're hiring across our technical teams. So product management teams. Okay. We're hiring across the growth team. So that's anywhere from sales operations, so sales ops to actual account executives, okay? We're hiring, you know, if you think about member success, like we're always going to want to see, you know, great talent get infused there. Um, And then the other part of it is, you know, when we think about hiring, we're, we're hiring in a couple different ways how we approach this, which is, I talked about being a generalist, right? Some roles, we really need really talented humans that can be generalists, right? Other roles, we need that specialization. So we need people, if we're going to hire in a technical role, then you're going to be, you know, specialized in technology. But like, if we're going to hire you even on the growth team, you know, there is room for generalists. So yeah. like, I, I don't know, most startups at this stage don't have a senior director of enablement. We do. I just brought him on. His first day was on Tuesday of this week. And the reason why I did that, and that was before we hired an account executive. So we brought in a VP of sales. We brought in sales enablement. We've been using, we brought in a BDR, you know, Mm -hmm. and now we're going to build, bring in the, like the filler roles that are going to help those, you know, that are going to help the team scale. Um, we're going to publish this out on LinkedIn soon as to like what we're actually going after. But, you know, we're coming off the heels of raising our seed plus round, right? Because for us, 2022 is a series a pursuit. That's where we're heading. That's cool. Uh, Thank you for sharing that. And you you hear that listeners like might be worth reaching out. What, what is a good way like to reach out to to the, to, to you, to the company? Here's my email. Ready? So D Rosignol, R O S S I G N O L at stopwatch.tech. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you. Um, and then I have a couple more questions for you. Uh, one, well, probably about two left. So one is like a kind of the final question we like to ask in the pre-pod Q&A, like just sort of your challenge for listeners. This is a fun question we like to ask everyone. Do you want to, you want to share your, your challenge? Yeah. And I think we briefly talked about that, at, you know, throughout this, this conversation, which is um, my biggest and, and I might even elaborate on that one. My biggest challenge to um, to anyone who wants to wear the founder hat, right, is to focus on value, to focus on something that they believe adds value and is aspirational. And 
most VCs ask for the size of that value upfront, right? How big is this going to be? I'm going to be the shave against the grain investor and say, if it's passionate enough for you, if it's aspirational enough for you, if you think it's valuable, right? Go after it because there is a good chance that other people either need it or didn't know that they needed it. And so one of the things I've always found as I was sitting in pitch meetings and I've had to you know, raise capital and I've had to you know, be in that seat, I would always get asked the question, which was you know, the size of everything, which mm-hmm. it's fair, but I'd also get questions around, you know, tell me about the competitors, right? Tell me about, you know, and I, and I always found that it was a way to proxy either that the opportunity wasn't interesting enough for them or that they weren't educated in the opportunity at all and they needed you to educate them on the fly. So in that regard, I would say, get out of the room. Yeah. You know, as an entrepreneur, your job isn't to educate the venture community. The venture community is supposed to educate themselves around what you're doing, okay? And as part of that, you should run process against the concept of, you know, I, this person says they're a VC or they're an angel investor. You know, have they ever done anything remotely interesting that we could resonate on a human level? Not mm-hmm. have they ever invested in something similar, but mm-hmm. is there anything interesting about that person that like we could have a rapport? Because at least I think for me and everyone that I know as VCs, this is the one thing we all do agree on is we like the people, you know, yeah. like we're in it for the people. So we want that connective tissue. So be aspirational, run a proper you know, process. There's one startup I'm going to plug. Okay. Yeah. And I don't normally do this, but I think it's important to plug them because they are the, they have done the smartest investment process I have ever seen in the history of being in venture for me, my history of venture. Yep. Okay. There's a company called Scale, S-K-A-E-L. If you go to scale.fund, okay, just that, you're going to see the founder, Bubba, use a process in which VCs can go to this location and they can self-select in on whether or not they're even interested in this deal. So before Bubba has to go out and look for the VC, right, he can actually push people and advertise against this place that he's created. It is genius. And it has enabled them to receive one of the highest valuations I have ever seen a seed company go to being a Series A company. What was the valuation? Can't share that yet. It's okay. coming out. Okay, uh, cool. But I will tell you that um, it is high. <laughs> That's a super interesting tip. And I, I'm going to, ch- when we're off, I'll have to actually hit play and sound on in the video on the scale S-K-A-E-L dot fund site that, that just popped up. Um, One of the best, best entrepreneurs that I know yeah. so far right now outside yeah. of Meg, you know, Megan Bauman, Bubba, you yeah. know, you got Carlos Ventura. I mean, I can, yeah. these, these are smart founders. That's awesome. Thank, yeah, thank you for sharing that. That's, I mean, th- th- these are some good tips for, uh, for listeners too, certainly, certainly for me. And, to- and I totally relate on that sort of the, the advice you, you, you're, you're giving sort of just in general. Like it's, it's advice I try to follow. Like I got some interesting pushback from people close to me more in my oh, personal and professional life when I wanted to invest it, my you know, re- resources in Boston Speaks Up. And I was like, well, 
I'm going to love this and it, and it's, 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 I'm passionate about it. I just so happen to believe that once it's built, like people will appreciate it and it can become a successful business endeavor, which it has become. And it didn't take, yeah, thank you. And, and it's, it's, those are the types of, it's the net new, like things that don't exist that aren't necessarily, um, not necessarily obvious, but sort of like you can be passionate about and you can be, you know, and you can be, you can be disciplined and consistent with because you're passionate about it. Like it goes hand in hand. So Zach, you know, I, last thing I'll say to that, I love when I can get an entrepreneur to say, I don't know. Yeah. I love that. I love it because what it means to me is that they are being intellectually honest about the situation. What I hate hearing is when someone has an answer to all my questions, you know, there's always, I don't like it. I don't, yeah. it makes me feel icky because yeah. there's something that they don't know. Yeah. And if they don't know it, I for sure don't know it either. <laughs> you know? Yeah. This is, this is a topic I've talked about with my students a lot, which is sort of, and I, t- I, t- I point them towards Brene Brown. I say, everyone needs to embrace their vulnerability a bit more. And, 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 and in that vulnerability, you know, like you're expressing, you know, you can express some like just authentic humility. Like you'll endear yourself in people's hearts by saying, I don't actually know that. That's a great question. And I need to look into that more. Like that's why they just, it's, it's really helpful to, um, to not sort of like talk around or, or for, or force feed sort of like answers to all questions because that's the point, like what the successful businesses don't happen in a vacuum. Um, and they happen with collaboration and feedback. And, uh, I think that, you know, clearly, clearly you and a lot, you and I are aligned on this. Um, my last, my last question for you is how's, you know, how's, how's the, the winter going? Like looking forward to spring, summer, your, um, which, what are some of your favorite things to kind of to do with the family? I'll tell you for me, my daughter's never gone bowling. We're going bowling this Saturday with one of her friends from school. Um, so I'm excited. I'm excited about that. But what's what about the Rosignol family? What what do you got going on? Yeah. So the Rosignol family just did one crazy thing um, last weekend. We converted our diet to a plant based diet. Nice. And um, so we got about a bunch of meat eaters that are mad at me right now. Um, hey, I, I, but- well, let's talk because plant. <laughs> I, I, we, we're pesca. We do do fish, but we're plant based. So. Yeah. Talk impossible. So, talk beyond to me. I got recipes and all, all sorts of stuff. <laughs> yeah. No, I love my, my, my eldest son, you know, has been using his, his mom as a proxy to get to me, you yeah. know? Um, and so, you know, I might have to be a little lenient. They're a little younger. I might have to be a yeah. little lenient. Um, but uh, that's our, that's our big rock as a family. The cool. other thing I'm, I'm waiting, you know, for it to thaw out. I, I love, I love golf. Um, golf's my favorite pastime. Yeah. Um, not that I'm, you know, any great at it, but I, I just love being out in a nice manicured area. Um, and so when that hits, um, I'm excited about that. I'll be going to some conferences. Um, and then, you know, we're taking the kids to New York city, um, during their spring break to just go through a cultural sort of infusion. So my kids are multicultural, um, and it's important for them to see what it would be like to live, you know, in a place which is really large and impersonable at most. Mm -hmm. Um, and so we want them to, you know, embrace that. Um, they, so we're going we're to take them to a bunch of museums. We're going to take them, cool. you know, to some cool places to eat. Um, be, we're going to be safe, obviously, you know, make sure yeah. that we're safe. But, you know, I can't stop progress with them. You know, they need to learn this stuff. Um, yeah. So that's, that's happening soon. Cool. You're, you're sort of following in your parents' footsteps and, and right. you know, New York and is, is, is on the 
list of places Haiti too to, to bring your kids to someday? Have you guys been yet? Yeah. So interesting enough, my wife and I used to travel a bunch to Sierra Leone. So she runs a nonprofit in West Africa. And so um, between Sierra Leone and Port-au-Prince, we've got our hands hands full. Um, I want them to go to all the, you know, I've like, I've either worked or lived in about nine different countries. So I think I want them to like, you know, um, see them all at some yeah. point. Starting yeah. in the home base, it's, it's cheaper, right? Yeah. To get them on a train three hours, get them to New York. Um, and then eventually when COVID, you know, is better managed then yeah, wheels up, they're, they're headed to Sierra Leone, they're headed to Haiti, they're headed to Guatemala and and, and Colombia. That's cool. Awesome. Well, Dan, this has been an absolute pleasure. Uh, I'm looking forward to the kind of conversation continuing offline between us. Hey, thank you. And, and, you know, thank you for doing this for, for the community. And if there's anything I can be of service on, just, you know, you know how to find me. Absolutely. Yeah. I'll, um, let's be, I'll make sure I get your, uh, your number after. So it would be on a, a texting basis. I'll let you know once we get a little, uh, a little meetup going soon. That'd be nice. Terrific. Yeah. Thank you, man. Appreciate you. Dan, been, been such a pleasure. Appreciate you as well. And, uh, enjoy the rest of your day. Awesome. Cheers. Right. Cheers. Cheers, Boston.